to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense, from culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Nothing too exciting in the hospitality news this week. Eat Out to Help Out continues to get generally some very strong feedback from most of the sector. Out of town locations generally still seem to be stronger than city centres, no surprises there. And Rent Armageddon still looms on the horizon with more and more CVAs and closures announced on almost a daily basis. And we're officially in recession as a country and hospitality is a significant cause of that. But with all of that backdrop, the sun has been shining and lots of people are trading well and making the most of a very short season, nervous about what autumn may bring. But nervous or not, you have to be impressed with today's guest's energy levels. Adam Handling works hard, has achieved a lot and is not sure of an opinion or two that he is quite happy to share. Now Adam joined me just 48 hours after reopening The Frog, his flagship restaurant in Covent Garden. He'd been through a particularly traumatic closure period where he'd lost four of his venues and learnt a great deal about the business side of running restaurants. Adam speaks openly and honestly about the financial, physical and mental aspects of what he's been through, but he's kept a huge number of his team. Despite 57% payroll costs on reopening, he's keen to find another venue before the year is out to accommodate his talented crew and try and ensure they keep their jobs. He's working hard, he's thinking about Michelin stars, and he's one of the most driven people I've chatted to. Adam's enthusiasm for all things sustainable and what he learned through his now closed restaurants, The Ugly Butterfly and Bean and Wheat, are very, very infectious. Personally, I wish Adam the very best for the future, and like many of us, he may well end up with a stronger business as a result of all he has learned in the past few months. Now remember, if you enjoy these podcasts, can you do me two quick favours, please? One is head over to the website humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit the Patreon button where you can buy me a thank you beer. And secondly, can you please pause this episode, pick up the device you're listening on, scroll down to the review section on the app and hit five stars and subscribe even better, leave a few words of encouragement. It makes me smile, it helps the pesky algorithms get this podcast in the ears of more people, and that helps me get even better guests for you and I to enjoy. Win-win all round for just a few seconds work. Thanks and enjoy the chat, and one final thing, the audio delay. It really annoyed me listening back, but hopefully you won't even notice it, but there is a little delay that makes it sound like I'm a bit slow in responding to Adam sometimes. Sorry. Blame the internet, but rest assured, I'm not actually suffering from some sort of mental delay. Cheers. Adam Handling, chef and restaurateur, welcome to the podcast and uh, thank you so much for sparing the time. And I say that to most people because I'm always grateful that people spare the time, but with you, I I don't think it could be any more real because you uh, are an exceptional, busy human being. So thank you. Can you just explain uh, where in the world are you at the moment, please, Adam? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm in my Chelsea restaurant, Adam and Chelsea, in the Belmont Hotel. So I was doing some stuff here this morning. So it's, uh, yeah, nice and comfortable. 
Excellent. Is that one open yet? Oh. Yeah, opened on Saturday, but the restaurant's um, the one where it's going to be open the least at the moment. So for this month, it's only Thursday, Friday, Saturday it's open, uh, but the bar's open seven days a week. So I'm sitting out on the terrace, enjoying the sun. Oh, wow. Very nice. Many people about? No, it's actually surprisingly strange. You know, Chelsea is usually full of people walking everywhere because of all the shops, but it's it's completely dead. It's a ghost town out here. And yet you go to Covent Garden and it's literally like walking in a circus. There's so many people. Wow, really? That's interesting because somebody described it to me. I was chatting to uh, Chris Gumbel, who's the CEO of Brewhouse and Kitchen a couple of days ago. And uh, he was saying that it was a little bit like a polo mint London at the moment in the fact the centre was completely empty and dead. But then the outskirts, the suburbs, certainly from their venues wise, were really busy. But that's, that's good to hear that at least Covent Garden's picking up. Yeah, yeah, Covent Garden is, is absolutely packed. We're actually going to be building an outside area there, I think, the end of this week um so like lots of big flower sofas and things like that because we've got a license now to, to put a restaurant on the street so not only do we have the inside area of 32 seats we've actually been given a license for 36 seats outside which is fantastic just got to make sure we can make the most of it before winter comes in yeah 100 does that mean you'll have more covers than you did originally yeah 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 it would be yeah yeah for sure but outside we're going to do um we're doing toad on the road which will be like bar snacks and bar food and, and, and like zero waste sort of stuff. So, for instance, fish finger sandwiches, but using turbot trim, uh, lobster rolls using the lobster knuckles from the lobster dish, you know, uh, playful things like that that we can actually sell very affordably because they're, they're basically a, a wasted item in the kitchen. Amazing. All right. Well, we'll definitely touch on that more. And I just love your uh, yeah continuous creativity. So you you know, judging by how busy you are and, and various awards and all the things you, you've done at such a young age, you don't like look like a person who was you know particularly cut out to be uh, locked down and told not to do anything for four months. So we're, we're going to chat a little bit about what you did do, but then much more about reopening. But can I just ask? So Saturday morning, you know, forty eight hours ago, just a little bit more, having had the restaurant shut for four months, that was your your reopening uh, morning of of the the frog your sort of flag, flagship Covent Garden venue how did you feel on Saturday morning to be reopening again was it quite emotional and how did the day go it was emotional because the day before we weren't even finished the building works so you know it was still like oh crap that piece of art has to go up that needs done that paint needs touched up and then when I went in this morning uh, sorry Saturday morning the builders had been working all through the night and so had George our, our group GM he was he was really bashing on stunning it was so beautiful and, and I'm not gonna lie I got emotional I put all of my savings I now have are, are now in this restaurant. So if it doesn't work, I'm kind of screwed. Uh, but it's absolutely beautiful. And it was so amazing to, to have guests in the restaurant, you know, talk about it. And it's the first time since opening our entire restaurant group where I've changed Covent Garden's menu 100%. So right there, given three months off, it's given us time to develop and really progress, push and um, make the menu far better than it ever has been. So it was really emotional. Yeah. What was the idea of the building work then? Because you'd already, when, when did you open it? It was about a year ago, was it? Or? No, it's three years in September. So it's, uh, yeah, it's quite oh, a while. that long, blimey. Okay. So it was, it was just literally a, a refresh job then, was it? Or was, it, was the yeah. building work as a result of COVID changes? Well, ironically, it was like a blessing in disguise. Uh, about a week before lockdown, one of the apartments above the restaurant, uh, their boiler overflowed and it kind of like ruined the, the their floor, went down into our restaurant during service, but luckily right at the beginning. So we managed to shift everyone to Chelsea and um, uh, like kind of like made a mess of the ceiling and the floor. So out of doing it, the insurance company, uh, they're the ones who did the refurb. So <laughs> it was a, such a blessing in disguise that I got a refurb that was free. Obviously, a little touching up with new tables and some new service areas that I, I put in all of my rest and, and Eve bar as well. That was that was us. 
but um yeah all because of a happy accident that's a yeah that's amazing how how long would you have had to close for presumably it wouldn't have taken four months to do that you know it took it took about five weeks to um to do that refurb wow quite a lot of damage then done yeah 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 lots but actually, I didn't actually think it was that much. I didn't really notice it, but I noticed the roof needed to be a touched-up paint in the walls as well. But the floor, I was just like, oh, that's just wear and tear. The insurance was like, nope, we'll redo that one for you. I was like, I'm not going to say no to that at all. Gosh, that's the first good news insurance story I've had on this podcast for quite some time, Adam. Everybody else has been swearing and cursing about them. So uh, you've, just, <laughs> you've just set them in a good light. They should be very grateful. You should get free premiums oh. for a couple of years as well. Uh, I don't know about that. So, they also um, for- cancelled on is when we tried to claim for the covid closure little buggers yeah you and everybody else i think i heard you saying you even had pandemic cover but because it wasn't listed no interest basically correct and i think that's the same with most insurance people you know they they cost a lot of money you know five six seven thousand per property a year and then you get in you get you get in some trouble you get you need help and they're like yeah insurance cancelled x y and z happened and i was like bloody hell uh yeah vultures yeah, it is incredible. Well, you've undone the good bit that you've done with the with the floor story. Uh, there, we're back. We're back. Uh, yeah, back back in the room. Um, so yeah, reopening day. Then did it did it because it, it's very unusual, I think, isn't it, that we you know close all of our restaurants and then reopen them all at once, and the, and the staff presumably a little bit rusty. But how did it go? Did you nail it on Saturday? We nailed it. We nailed it. It was um, we did a test service whilst the builder's work was going off on the Friday, where where I ate and so did some of the other senior directors. They all ate, and the staff did, did you know did a test run on us rather than guests, and that was difficult. I was worried, but the following day I was on the pass. Everyone was on the ball. It was it was phenomenal, and just to see as many faces. First days are always really good. Because it's all the big fans of the restaurant that come. It's not ones that are, you know, the business ones or whatever. They really want to interact and they want to see the journey progress from when they've came in countless times before to then coming back. Like the, the there must have been probably ten tables that were like you were the last person we ate at before lockdown, so we wanted to make you the first to come back. And it's just like it's it's amazing. It's so beautiful and it's really heartwarming that we have such a loyal following in the group. Yeah, I think it's lovely, isn't it? When, when you know, all that hard time in closure and, and the financial sort of catastrophic impact and you wonder what you're going to do, but that public support, custom support, uh, it, it is emotional and I think it does motivate you to, uh, to, yeah, to put the effort in to come out the other side, I think, doesn't it? Oh, 100%, 100%. It, it makes you feel great and the team. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So for those um, listening who don't know the frog, can you just describe it? How many covers is it? What's your sort of style of food? Yeah, so Frog and uh, Frog by H in Covent Garden. Uh, it's our flagship restaurant. It's only thirty-two seats uh, inside, and it's very much a menu based on Britain. So we say when we say like, how do you describe the food? It's British food inspired by London, and I mean the London part is London's a stunning, much uh, you know, multicultural city, and um, we take our inspiration from everybody that we come across everywhere that we've traveled but basically using fundamentally british ingredients so if we're making oyster sauce for one specific type of dish you know we're using british oysters we'll make our own oyster sauce if we're using kimchi we're not buying kimchi from korea we're making our own using the cauliflower leaves for instance that sort of stuff but we take the inspiration the stunning flavors uh, the style of foods from around the world and we make it british so i think it's quite good to 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 say that there is no real rule book about british food the way it's going because it's such a young cuisine other than that it was french and bloody roast beef which is delish 
But British food, I think, for the last seven to ten years is really making its own. So there's no real rule book of that. Does that make sense? It does makes absolute sense. Yeah, yeah. And you've had some uh, some amazing feedback. I've not been, but next time I'm up in London, I will definitely be uh, be coming in. Um, can I just ask? So, I- impact of COVID and, and closing your restaurants. So you, you've you've started to reopen just at the weekend. Are there any of your venues pre pre sort of COVID venues that you won't be reopening? What's the sort of outcome of what's happened? Uh, yeah, sadly, there's four of them. Um, so we're not opening Ugly Butterfly, Broke Hoxton and um bean and wheat and iron stag so i, I lost four in in the in the blaze sadly yeah that that is sad is that is that just based on not being able to get enough financial support or just looking at the outlook for london and thinking that you know demand's not going to be there what, what's the main reason for those i got no financial support the government was i don't know how to word it any better but absolutely shit towards hospitality you know when 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 bojo condemned hospitality to death by saying avoid restaurants and bars but keep them open you know you're still continually needing to pay things you know you have to pay you still have to pay the staff because furlough didn't come in until just after that you still have to pay electricity you still have to pay the rent you still have to pay the food you've got food stock already you've got wine stock all that stuff and he sentenced it to death um because my company is one company adam Hanning limited and that's all the restaurants you know that bounce back 50 grand loan thing what a load of crap. It's not 100% guaranteed. I didn't get it at all. Uh, and, and, and where people would have individual companies per restaurant so that it's easier if one goes down, you just cut it off and bankrupt it and the rest stay afloat. I had it under one. So I was only eligible for 50K for all of our nine outlets, um, which I didn't get because we were too, too big, too large and uh, financially not in a strong position. Um, yeah, so what the government was saying publicly about how they're supporting hospitality uh, and and all that i don't really know how to word it any better but it being a load of bollocks and it put me in a lot of problems i i lost my house out of it i lost a lot of things out of it uh and yeah you adapt you overcome you conquer it makes you stronger and also makes you want to vote in the next election even though i never get into politics <laughs> Yeah, it does seem frustrating, doesn't it? I think, you know, the the uh, rateable values, the 51k cutoff, which must just be laughable in London. I mean, even down here in Bournemouth, where I'm based, I didn't qualify because, you know, my, my rateable values are too high. But I can't imagine anybody in hospitality in London's got a rateable value under 51k to qualify for any of the grants. And, and the C bills, we did eventually manage to qualify, fortunately, but I know, yeah, the, 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 you know, the vast majority didn't and it's it's probably only because we've been in business a long time and had a good relationship with the bank but i take it even that the bank just weren't weren't willing to t- i guess hospitality is just considered to be too high a risk industry at the moment to invest in i suppose oh for sure it is uh, it is and, and losing so many restaurants as well your share price kind of drops massively yeah well well done because you you always seem to come across super positive and pumped and and, and you'd achieve so much in a young age so you, you, i take it at no point did you consider just chucking in the towel and walking away have you you've always decided of you that you were going to knuckle down and try and get through it i've never spent so long in my career in tears you know it's been an emotional it's been an emotional wreck for me but you know you can just sit and moan and grumble and blame the world for all the problems which it's chucking at you or you you adapt you you know you 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 modify your business plan you modify your your idea of what to do your forecasts and then you adapt to it you create a new avenue a new stream of revenue because if you don't you'll lose everything and you don't just do it for yourself you do it for the team that's dedicated years and years of work to you so as an owner of the group i'm the one that has to you know 
wake up in the morning and just say, stop being such a little bitch. We can create something new. Let's create Haim where we can create revenue that way to keep the restaurant group afloat. Let's, you know, let's work even harder for the for Covent Garden. Let's uh, let's up Chelsea's stuff. You know, we lost some, but we, we consolidate everything that we're doing. So yeah, I'm, I'm always one that inside, oh, don't get me wrong when I, <laughs> I get upset sometimes, but I'll never show it to the staff because as soon as I do it, they're like, oh crap, maybe we are in trouble. Maybe we do have to look for a new job. Um, but with all the with all the closures of the restaurants, we've we've kept near enough mostly all of the staff near enough not all of them but mostly all and we've put them all into the restaurants that uh, are still open doing that is because they're in a worse position than i am for goodness sake you know i fire them right now where are they going to work no one's hiring no one's hiring at all i'm inundated with people wanting to work from uh, within the group because there's nothing there so we make a we i've created my business plan where it's um it's, it's pretty much just breaking even for the next few months uh, until we hopefully um, opening another restaurant towards the end of the year so that the staff that I have can finally go back to there and it will push the wage bill down. You know, I'm running at the moment at 57% wage cost. That's, that's mental in, 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 in this current climate, absolutely mental. But I refuse, refuse to make everyone who's worked for me for so many years unemployed just to, just to earn an extra little bit of money for for uh, the group, we'll be fine. We'll survive as long as we keep focused and everybody realizes that one wrong turn and we are in the shit. We'll be okay. Yeah, that's good. I imagine you'll get an immense amount of loyalty. And I know some of your team. Your um, is he exec chef or group chef? He's been with you for twelve years, I think. I mean, so you already had that loyalty, but I would imagine. Uh, even more so people people really buy in if you're if, I think just if you're authentic and genuine and, and open with them and then try really bloody hard to keep them employed so I imagine your team are uh, very supportive of you at the moment yeah well I, I do have a very a very um very loyal uh, team uh, you know Stephen yeah you're right group chef been with me 12 years the head chef of West London he's been with me 10 years sous chef of West London's been with me seven you know head chef of East London's been with me eight sous chef of Central London's been with me six I've got a lot of the 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 main people because I like to promote within as well. It's all about trying to really pull out as much talent and as much ambition as, as the chefs that have worked for me as commies, CDPs, whatever, and really push them to make them grow. Because at the end of the day, nobody really wants to stand still. There are some out there that are happy with CDP and they want to stay that way for the rest of their life because they just like to cook, which is lovely. But a lot of the chefs, you know, you've got ambition, especially when you're in my group. You know, you constantly see me running around like a headless chicken trying to make something and, and, and make, a, make a business grow and be it more exciting and, and new dishes. When you're surrounded by people constantly trying to run forward and make something new, it's inspiring. Whether, whether or not it's not just me, it's all of them too. So I like, I like, I like to promote within on all. So in terms of senior chef-wise, we very rarely ever hire for them. Yeah, that's really good, particularly in the last few years, I think, because, you know, try, trying to find quality in the last few years in chefs has been really challenging. And I guess, ironically, that's going to be flipped now, because as you say, for the first time in a long time, there's a lot of people uh, looking for work. Um, I, I just want to touch, you You mentioned Haim just now. So one of the things I know you'd always said is that, you know, a lot of restaurants have got into Deliveroo or, or sort of diversified recently. And you'd always said that, you know, rightly so, I think your food didn't travel. Um, what is Haim and what was the trigger for you launching that? So Haim, Scottish for home, uh, uh, the trigger was really, uh, I had no support from the government, no nothing like that. And I, to be fair, I didn't actually know that uh, 
lockdown would be so long. When it happened, I was thinking, oh, maybe a few weeks, maybe a month. But, you know, the more it came on, the more I worried because I couldn't now not afford anything. I couldn't even afford to top up the, sal- uh, the salaries for the staff. I could Nothing at all. Um, so I, I, cre- I created with Nicola, my ops director, and Stephen, um, the concept of Haim to say, you know what, hell with it. Let's just make, let's just make dishes that we can do uh, all the prep for and then they can just... Uh, redo them at home you know just reheating uh, warming up uh, and finishing and we'll do videos to it so I did them on my mobile it wasn't anything costly at all it cost me nothing we did it all on there where they can scan a QR code and do all that I got so much shit for doing that so much from chefs especially outside of London saying why are you, why are you doing videos you know why are you doing that they don't want that they want fish and chips they want all that and giving me a lot of crap on uh, on Twitter and I'm like I'm just ignoring them because I'm like listen I'm not being funny. I just made a hundred thousand pounds on Haim in one month. When you're, uh, we're doing that because we're we're working really really hard to really push it. And we had a menu that was was like a restaurant menu. It was like you, the menu was massive. Everyone's doing one or two dishes, and I'm I'm doing a full 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 big menu. And I'm doing it because it's variety. And also, I do the whole of the UK. So as soon as I did that, that was it. And then when Haim became when Haim became really, you know popular i felt far more relaxed about being able to keep this restaurant group afloat far far more relaxed. so then because of that i, I was now able to pay the, some of the suppliers that i was uh, that i was um using for for Haim, and now all of they got all of them got paid for i was able to start paying for things like the electricity because i couldn't have the electricity turned off or my ccdb cameras my fire alarms will all be shut down too and i was able just to keep the the business still touching cloth every single uh, every single day but it was it was more beneficial than going minus 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 so i only did it to yeah. keep the rest of the group afloat that i would ever i would ever uh, do a takeaway but now it's here to stay because it's a great concept the menu is going to change far more frequently because the rest of the groups are open uh, and it's just a real fun thing to do if you don't live in london and can't get to any of our restaurants you can literally order on uh, before um before like uh, tuesday and it'll be sent out on Thursday, delivered to you before lunch on Friday, and it has a three-day shelf life on it, so that you can literally eat it Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, and you can have real a real interpretation of our restaurant group anywhere in the UK. Yeah, and it, and it looks amazing. So I've got to ask. So from from when you had the idea, because the speed that you work literally blows my mind. Because you don't do things by half, do you? So from the from the sort of concept of okay, we're in the shit, we're going to launch this to actually launching it because you've done you know it's got lovely packaging like you say you did a video for every dish you didn't just do a couple of items it's branded well there's a website linked with it it's in essence launching a new business how long did it take to go from concept to okay we're ready to launch seven days seven days and the longest one was (laughs) that's uh it's impressive i watched i watched uh yeah your little sort of insta post on it and i thought holy shit because i could see all your bags were kind of perfectly branded and then when you said you'd done you know a separate video and a qr code for every dish i was like you you must have more hours in the day than a than a normal human it's uh it's it's very impressive so was it was it a case of (laughs) all of them in one i was so tired after that yeah oh it's you just make the rest of us look shit adam if i'm honest so if you could just slow down a little bit at, at some point was it was it a case of a of a really sort of big surge of interest earlier on and then it's dropped off or is it staying pretty consistent that business uh the well the first two weeks we only did london and it was busy but you know like me 
me, Maria, and um, uh, and Jamie, we delivered all the all the inside ten mile London radius, and we were doing quite a lot. I would say the first week we did maybe maybe two hundred uh, dishes in the first week. Uh, second week maybe maybe like three hundred. Then I did FedEx, and I did about a thousand in the that week. And then the following one was Father's Day, and I literally, I, I shit you not, there was like two thousand dishes uh, that week. And it's just like this is this is crazy. We had so FedEx come and they pick all the parcels up to do it. And he needed a truck. We had so many boxes everywhere, all wrapped up nice and beautiful to be sent all over the country. And uh, yeah, it was it was fantastic. It was amazing to see. It has dropped down slightly because we've capped the bookings. Uh, well, we've capped the orders purely because we're just opening the restaurant. We need to concentrate on that as well as home. So we would rather do it where they both work well. And then we'll reopen more time slots uh, next week and we'll change the menu the week after that as well. Yeah. And where are you actually producing the food from? From one of the restaurants or have you got a separate unit to do yeah. it? In Covent Garden. So <laughs> all the chefs are like, well, you're doing the refer, please, put in a, please fit in another walk-in fridge because we've got no space with this Haim stuff. And I'm like, mate, there's no space there anywhere. We just got to adapt. <laughs> Love it. Well, hats off to you because I, what I love about our sector is how innovative it is. And and despite the uh, yeah the Twitter negativity, you know, I think that the, there's so much respect for so many people who have just found some way to to pivot and get through this. And uh, I, I think it's such an exciting thing. And I think in the main, you know, despite you know, you know government criticism, I guess, or, or, or challenges or lack of support, um, I do think the sector has come out positively. You know, so much has been done to feed the vulnerable and feed the NHS, and so many people have stood up. And UK hospitality, sort of, you know, with an ear to government, it, it does it does feel like we're getting a little bit more respect, whereas we were perceived as just somewhere that people, you know, work while they're students. Do you feel that the industry has come out of, of this pandemic with maybe a little bit more credibility and understanding of the challenges of restaurants? Yeah, I've noticed that London, the London community of hospitality has really came together a lot closer um, and, and, and they've, they've helped uh, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of, well, all of us out. We're communicating more, we're chatting more, we're helping each other more. Um, and that's, that's really amazing. You know, restaurants aren't in comp- you know, direct competitors anymore. They're, they're there to support and help. And in terms of charity, we were, we were doing over a thousand meals a week uh, for charity uh, within Covent Garden before we started Haim um, to, to, you know, help the vulnerable, help the NHS, help all of them. And, you know, what industry does that? What industry has the time to stop everything they're doing to really target people that actually need a lot more help than we do? And this, you know, lockdown has actually been able to do that. And, and, made people respect what the nhs is doing rather than bitching and moaning about you know that they have to wait a long time for an appointment or whatever but now they actually see they're working hard 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 as well and to be able to give back to the people that are looking after everything are looking after everyone and one person at least in our our family has been uh, looked after by the nhs within this within this uh, closure is phenomenal to give back to them yeah, that's good. And I think hospitality is, in essence, a, a reflex that, you know, people genuinely work and, and love hospitality. We just do it. So to see so many restaurants fundamentally on their knees, you know, financially, uh, and would have been so easy to throw in the towel, they actually, yeah, they, you know, they, they kept their electricity on, they kept their supply of sweet, and they, they bought food in, uh, and they produced for the vulnerable people. It certainly made me very proud, I think, that we, we stood tall and represented ourselves well. Yeah, yeah, I, no, I, I agree. It was, it's, it's, it's beautiful to see. Beautiful to see. Yeah. 
So just sort of focusing on your, your, your general ethos and a little bit of background, you know, as I've alluded to doing a bit of research, you know, you, you work incredibly hard. I know, I think I read that you pretty much, you know, you were visiting every restaurant every day, then working on the pass in the evening. You know, what does your general day look like? Because there's a big difference, I think, between being a chef and being a restaurateur. So, you know, are you also good at the, the finance of the business and the branding and marketing? What does an average day look like for Adam Handling? Well, give it give it today. We've 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 closed the restaurant groups now on Monday, Sunday, Mondays. Usually it was seven days a week operations on all of them apart from Hoxton. But today I wake up at the crack of dawn, forget I have meetings such as our one previously. Uh, yeah, <laughs> filling in finance, going through business plans, um, what we're doing, marketing, uh, editing the social media content to go out on all the platforms uh, and that sort of stuff. That's the day where we're closed. But then I work very closely with my operations team to really break down the uh we our forecast what we do we have a we have a business plan that's a five-year business plan it's obviously been re-edited from from the virus and then we do uh forecasting every three months we re reforecast every monday uh to see that if it's in line with bookings if spend per head's gone up and we be a little bit more accurate so that we know staffing wise food cost wise that we're, we're safe and in terms of my role now being a restaurateur i'm i'm more I, I target that a lot more. We have head chefs in all the restaurants that can that can do all the prep and uh, making sure that the health and safety is done and the temperature checks and all that and the costings. But in terms of the the overall business, that yeah, that's my role to do it. So I do finance, I do marketing, I do social media, I do uh, I do all of that sort of um, side of the business along with my ops director Nicola, who's been with me a while. But at night time, whenever the restaurants open, I am on the pass. I'm on one. I'm on one restaurant pass every single night. So. Mostly it's Covent Garden, but a few times a week it can be Chelsea. And it really just goes where I want to go. But I'm on the pass almost. I'm on the pass every night the restaurant's open unless I really, really do have another meeting. Yeah. So what, what is it then that, that drives you and motivates you to work, you know, quite so relentlessly? Because it, it does sound like a, you know, a pretty bonkers workload. What's, what's your motivation? To be fair, it's to be surrounded by my friends I get to work to get away from, uh, well, to be more comfortable and to get away from, you know, the arguing at home if there is ever an argument or a screaming child or anything like that. I get, I get to, uh, to work and I love it. You know, we're, we're, we're all a bunch of passionate people, but we've been with each other for a long time. So simple is like, oh, what are we doing on the next menu? Let's create. And that creating side of the business is the part I love the most because you then get more inspired. You know, where uh, we work very closely with our suppliers or farmers, and it's just like, yeah, this is coming into season. Perfect. Let's try and create this. We have two labs. We've got a food lab and we've got a drinks lab. So we're constantly developing things, you know, using food waste for different cocktails where we can make it into alcohol. And all that creative side of the business is the reason why I go to work every day. All my kitchens are open planned as well. So the chefs serve the food still. And when you're serving them and you see the guest faces and they're loving it and you've noticed them before, all of that is so rewarding that it makes you want to come back again and again and again to work. And it makes you love it. I, I always say, if you don't enjoy what you're doing, regardless of the field you're in, get out of it. Get out of it because you just become a miserable sod. If you really enjoy what you're doing with the people that you're around and you love it, you'll constantly keep wanting to be there. So <laughs> I get to work to get away. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, I think you're right. You've got to love hospitality to do it because so many people listening will be going, you know, Jesus, seven nights a week, you know, every, every night in in service. Uh, yeah, we, you know, we're busier Friday, Saturday, and Sunday when everybody off is off. I sort of I understand why so many people look at hospitality as a sector, as an industry, and just go, "There's no way I'm doing that." But actually, when you're in the thick of it, it, it is such a buzz, isn't it, and such an energy uh, and a privilege to work in. So yeah, thank you for being such an enthusiastic human. <laughs> that's all right that's all right yeah but a lot of people when they're they see you want to see you know a chef on tv or in a magazine they're like yeah i want to do that as well it sounds great they get in the kitchen and they're like too many hours man i can't do it i'm like yeah i can understand that we're not going to reduce hours down we it is what it is but when you then do it for a long period of time it's a way of life you know it's like being in the army as soon as you it's the same sort of thing you go to war every service but you know you're having a great time with great people that you're that you trust around you as soon as you get out of the army, you're a bit lost. As soon as you, you know, you work seven days a week or five days still, but massive hours with the same amount of people and you leave or you're lost or lockdown. Prime example is lockdown. You know, a lot of the chefs, I felt so sorry for that. And that's why I created the charity stuff as well. So that they can come back and, and help with that and get out of the house. They, they, they feel broken. They feel lost. They feel sad. They feel depressed. Being in a place of work where you're surrounded by, you know, beautiful people that care about you as a person as well as pushing you to do great things you don't you know all your feeling inside of your heart becomes positive rather than on your own bored negative overthinking and sad yeah do you, do you think that so that kitchen culture that that you know the, the, the lots of hours because i always say like you can work a lot of hours in a kitchen and you can love it and you can love the vibe and you can you can love the sector and you've got to look at you know how much you're learning when you're in that but there seems to have been this change in the last few years of i don't know people being maybe maybe you know expecting more or maybe less from their work and you know wanting more time off and, and wanting restricted hours it, it feels difficult to strike that balance because in many ways you want people to have you know good family life and, and, and have kids and, and have some time off but the other way is you do want really impassioned people who, who absolutely love it and understand um, some of the compromises you make if you want to be at a top level in the kitchen do you think that kitchen culture change is sort of finished or do you think it's complicated what do we do about those sort of conflicting uh, objectives i guess yeah we always say we want a work-life balance but the realistically is you're a one team so work-life balance i've tried to implement you know three days work uh, sorry uh three days or four days working but i'm like guys if any of you's calling sick or any of you's you know uh, something happens to you or a family problem you put the whole kitchen in the shit because we really can't or we'll go back to five days and five doubles and, and uh, you know, well, then one person slips up, and then the other one has to be called in. Then another one slips up, another one called in. And you're like, no, fuck it. No, I'm done. Five doubles, like a normal kitchen, like we've always done. And people are fine with it. It's the new ones that are coming in or the younger generation of chefs coming into it. And I know it sounds really bad that I'm like a little slave driver about work-life balance. It is what it is. It's how I was trained. It's how the direction of, uh, especially the Ch uh, Covent Garden restaurant, Chelsea restaurant is a lot more um, uh, relaxed and a lot more uh, hour friendly. But with inside it, the job needs done. We're all gunning for a star. We're all gunning for perfection. And we all want it as much as each other. So therefore, the work-life balance, you know, we're putting all of our life into achieving that. When it's achieved, then I can imagine some of the chefs will say, you know what? I've done it. I've achieved it. Now I want to. Now I want to relax. Can I go to the Chelsea restaurant where I know that I'm going to have an extra day off? Whatever than that, and and they're fine with it. If someone requests a day because their parents are down or or whatever, perfect. You can have it off. No worries at all. And it won't be coming off as holiday. It'll come off just because you want the time off. Um, all of that sort of ones. But we look after the staff 
a lot more in different ways, in much, much more different ways. So all of the staff get to eat in all of my restaurants. So every time a menu changes, they get to bring a partner in for free and experience it. You know, we, we, we have you know staff parties, staff dinners, staff lunches. You know, we look after the staff in a lot more different ways. But in Covent Garden, work-life balance is, is not one of the ways that we do. Yeah. Did I hear something about you taking your chefs off to Thailand every Christmas or something like that as well? Was that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I took all the chefs, uh, well, the senior chefs to Thailand in, um, in uh, uh, January because I'm working on a new project and they needed their help with. Um, I just took the chefs to Tuscany last week. Uh, there was five of us out there doing some events out there. Yeah, they go all over with me. Jamaica, the Cayman Islands, you know, Russia, all of them places. Uh, and, and I take the team. Um, it's not just the same people going, me and Stephen. It's not just them. It's Stephen stays and I take the other ones and they get to see the world. It's all paid for them. Yeah, so whenever I'm doing an event, Cuba, for instance, I took them there just because we were learning about cigars. So I was like, right, okay, who all wants to go to Cuba? And we took four of them to uh, to Cuba just to learn about cigars for a week. Uh, and it, it's great. I you, you need to like the people you work with because when you go away with them, it's just like you're boring as shit and annoying. But you need to like who you're going away <laughs> with and the people in your kitchen. Yeah. Do they know because they don't get invited the next year? Is that how they know if they're boring as shit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We kind of we, we make we try and get as many people to go as possible. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I'm not going to let my chefs listen to this episode because they'll be demanding a trip to uh, to Cuba to learn about cigars, which I'd imagine they would absolutely <laughs> love. But uh, yeah, fair, fair play. And I think it's a bit like you know, sort of Olympic athlete. I think you know, like you say, you've got a star in mind, or they've got a particular goal, and you just work your ass off. And is it is it one Olympics or, or two Olympics? And you know, so it might be eight years or whatever that you just work your ass off for, and then eventually, yeah, a bit of burnout, bit of rest, but you you know, you just feel good that you've achieved it. So yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. You should just go for these things. Um, one of the other things, and I saw you do a talk on this uh, at a um, hotel and catering show earlier on in the year and, and that you've been sort of passionate about for a long time is uh, sort of the sustainability and the ethics of food. But again, in your typical style, not just a little bit, you know, you, you take it to an extreme with the ugly butterfly. What, what, where did this come from? What was the catalyst for your sort of obsession, I suppose, on, on the, uh, yeah, zero waste and, and being environmentally aware in food and drink? I started off when I opened my first restaurant, um, Froggy One in uh, Shoreditch, and it was it was because I couldn't I was struggling to then afford to pay the bills, uh, and I was like, how the hell, you know, my food cost has costed. How are we not been able to pay the bloody bills? And it was because we use day boats and we use small producers. So if one day I get twenty mackerels and I sell fifteen of them, I've got five left, and then the following day there's no more mackerels, so I get skate wings or whatever because they're the best on the boat. It's just like, what do we do with them five? And then staff are having a great little meal, sardines on toast, macaron on toast, that sort of stuff. And it was like, man, we have to really stop doing this. I love you all, uh, and you need to eat, but you know, you're going to have to start eating other stuff. I don't, we don't have, we didn't have a freezer. It was, it wasn't about that. So then I created Bean and Wheat um, in Bishopsgate. So it was like five minutes from from Shoreditch, and it was about coffee and bread. So. And everything that food-wise was in jars, so soused mackerel, you know, duck, uh, parfait using the offal of you know ducks, um, and, and that sort of stuff. Loads and loads of jars of things like that. Uh, the, the berries that weren't quite right would be made into jam. The apples that we would be peeling would make into chutney, so it'd be like apple peeling chutney and sort of stuff. And we were just finding ways where we can fundamentally make money from our food waste to pay our bills to stay afloat. And then after we'd done that, we created then the third restaurant being Covent Garden. And it was it was mental. It, they didn't have any food waste very much at all in that restaurant because it was very strict. And we had a bar underneath, so the food waste would be turned in 
to alcohol for the lab. So we would make shrubs, we would make infusions, we would make uh, that sort of stuff. Uh, and the snacks would represent that as well. You know, making a croquette with the, uh, the trimmings of fillet that we'll just mince down uh, and make into a bolognese and turn it into a croquette of that sort of way. And then when I opened Frog Hoxton, it was um, uh, on just off uh, Old Street. We created a, another bean and wheat where we wanted to do a restaurant, but a, a small one. So seven, uh, not sorry, eight till three. Uh, we, we would we would do that, and we would do actual proper dishes rather than things in jars. Uh, and it became really exciting to produce proper dishes. And and it, it was when it's gone, it's gone. So if we did have that macro situation, and then they they, they did like. Uh, beautiful sourdough that we had from the following day, soaked in olive oil, pan fried, and then a tomato ragu that was uh, made using all the tomato scraps, uh, cooked down with loads of balsamic, and then a beautiful bit of barbecued macro over the top of it for the leftover macros. You know, that's bloody stunning and delicious, perfect for lunch, perfect for brunch sort of style. Uh, and it went really well. Uh, right there, it was teamed up with beer. So it was like 220, 250 beers on the menu there. It was like a library, and it was stunning. And then when I opened um, Adam and Chelsea in, in Belmont, it, that's when things became a little bit like, wow, there's too much waste in this joint, too much waste. Not because we were careless, not because we didn't care, but because we had to cater for a hotel with such a stunning reputation. If someone's paying all these thousands for a bedroom and wants to have a lobster at three in the morning, they get a lobster at three in the morning. You know, we, we, had, to, we had to adapt into a way where we've never had to before. Uh, and it was all about making the best hospitality in a hotel uh, that we can do. A challenge for us, because we've never done it before, but a rewarding one at the end of the day. It was, it was great to be partnered with them. So then I, I uh, was speaking to the uh, Cadogan Estate, the owners of the, the building, uh, and they were like, we love your bean and wheat concept. Would you bring one to Chelsea? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. Let, let, let's do it. I don't think it will work in this neck of the woods because everyone's very wealthy and, and, and that sort of one. But yeah, I'd love to. And they, I teamed up with them again to create Ugly Butterfly using all the food waste of the hotel as a proper restaurant and my God, was it magical. The people in this area, which I thought wouldn't, wouldn't work, loved it it was always busy it was super affordable and it was you know creating things is the thing that's exciting about being a chef so creating a concept where it's like you're looking at everything we've only got see-through bags in the kitchen only see-through so we can see exactly what goes in the bin obviously we don't take anything out but the following day we'll never put it back in it we'll never bin it again but being able to say like you know the scones get made fresh every day for afternoon tea but there's always leftover scones what can we do with it cut them in half, cover them in butter, roast them in the oven, and do a huge quenelle of duck liver parfait made with the ducks that are in the uh, that we have on the a la carte menu. Things like that. It's just like super bloody tasty that you can create. The croissants that we make with a baker who's 24 hours, we then cut them in half and we cover them in cod's roll. Uh, so instead of like a nice focaccia covered in cod's roll or a nice piece of bread, you've got these sweet croissants and the salty cod. It's just bloody delicious. And just utilizing things like that, making uh, making ragus or shepherd's pies with all of the the trimmings from the the cows that we have, uh, mincing them down, cooking them uh, cooking them for like eight hours, so it's stunning with whipped bone marrow from the bones that we get from the same cows. You know, little things like that was 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 great. Making pasta using using things that would normally go in the bin, but yet make lovely, stunning, stunning dishes with them. So to create something is the thing where I love, and so does the team. And when I made Ugly Butterfly, it was it was a whole other ball game. You had to think extra. But in terms of sustainability in the group, 
how do you become sustainable? Do you utilize the whole vegetable? Do you utilize the whole the whole animal? Do you do responsible sourcing? Yeah, sure, but that's not how you become sustainable. How you become sustainable is you teach. If you do not teach, you do not know. Perfect example is everyone would bin cauliflower leaves or broccoli stalks because their parents had. My mom had. I'd always bin them as well, not for a few years, but like before then, you know, utilizing stuff that you've always thrown away, but you've always had it in your mind that, yeah, you've always done it. So that's how it should be done. So creating things like a Caesar salad made with the broccoli stalks where you thinly slice it on a mandolin instead of using cost lettuce, and then you mix it with Caesar dressing and all that sort of stuff, and the crunch and the water content is delicious. Utilizing things that you would always throw away in a more methodical, smarter way, but only doing it because you get taught it. So in Ugly Butterfly, I didn't have chefs, I only had students. Because a chef would come in with a with a mind as I've always done it like this, so I'm continuing. Students, sponges, but ones that really care about sustainability and and you you know eating off the land but eating everything, and then seeing their little their little cogs working, and then they then come to the drawing board with you to you and say, well, how you've done this, we can do this and we can do that. You know, growing our own mushrooms and all the um, ground coffee. So we yeah you you have like a, a pillowcase finished with a coffee hung in the wine cellar and all of a sudden you've got mushrooms growing well you plant it with the spores you've got mushrooms growing on it okay perfect you've got mushrooms on yesterday's bread so all the bread that's freshly made cut in half olive oil in the oven rubbed in garlic roasted with loads of the mushrooms that you've just grown with the, the coffee you know things like that so all of the packaging that we have in our group and everything from Haim is recycled or it's biodegradable it's, it's all that sort of stuff and it's just thinking about the bigger picture but you have to care about it yeah you do yeah and you god you make it sound so much more exciting than a lot of people i suppose who just go oh yeah and you know a little bolt on on the side we should probably give a shit about the environment um so you know that that all sounds phenomenal and and i can see it as a release of your creativity do you, do you think we have an obligation as a sector you know henry, henry dimbleby came out this week with his sort of uh you know looking at the food supply chain and and, and it's been sort of said that agriculture is probably one of the top three biggest impacts on the environment lots of people are changing to sort of you know either flexitarian or more plant-based diet looking at the impact of what we eat bearing in mind we're in food and drink and we probably understand the supply chain and we understand food better than anybody else do you think that we sort of have a moral obligation to educate and, and help teach people about where food comes from or do you think we should just sell what the customer wants to buy no, 100%. We have an obligation to do it. You know, the ones that can take the ones that control food waste and the ones that control mass buying are hosp- the hospitality industry. So a thing where I always say because the flexitarian, vegetarian, vegan that you just mentioned, I always say I hate that stuff. I think it's a load of bollocks. And I'll tell you why my little humble opinion says that. The meat industry produces 12 to 15% greenhouse gases, the the cattle industry, more than any transport industry. So, you know, more than planes, more than that, it's, it's the cattle market. All, all their, their, their farts, which <laughs> is hilarious, produces that much uh, greenhouse gases. So don't cut down on eating meat. Start to eat meat sensibly. So I say that, that the retired dairy cows, we retired dairy cows, they're usually between seven, eight years uh, in the dairy industry, hooked up to a machine, getting totally destroyed and having a horrible life. But then after that, they just get put and they get given to dog food or they get shipped away for ship meat in foreign countries. We don't utilize that meat. You don't need to stop eating meat. You need to start eating better meat. So you can slow down the meat consumption for your own personal health, 
but eat prop, eat, eat better. So I work with um, uh, people that buy retired dairy cows and then they let them roam around for a year or two to actually start to enjoy life and be happy because then the meat becomes more tasty. And we utilize that. So instead of having to go to one of their mass-produced cattle farms where are, are pumping them out when they're 550 kilos, we've got these much bigger beasts. They're like, you know, nine, 900 to plus kilo uh, animals that are absolutely perfect. They're tasty. They're full of marble because they're fat little monkeys and they're absolutely delicious. So it's not about just needing to cut down eating beef. You've got to cut down eating mass-produced shit beef and start to change it to eating meat that would normally go thrown away in the bin. So it's the sustainability approach to zero waste. That's the thing I like to do. So I changed all my uh, all my meat in Chelsea, which are tired dairy cows. I put it on the menu, which are tired dairy cows. No one ate it. I just took the word retired dairy cows off and put beef. Everyone eats it, but they enjoy it. It's got bags of flavor. It's stunning, stunning, stunning meat. And in terms of value cost to it, it's amazing. It's affordable because it would normally go in the bloody bin. Um, and they're much larger cuts of meat as well. So ribeye is far bigger, fillet's far bigger, uh, sirloin is if you uh, and all that sort of one. So you, it's, it's really nice, big, big cuts. That's the sort of thing that people need to think a little bit more. And again, it's all about teaching. Ignorance is bliss. So everyone's saying, you know, the meat market, we've got to cut down on eating it. I would say, yeah, cut down on eating that. Start eating the stuff that would normally get thrown away. And then cutting down on that automatically happens. It automatically happens because you're no longer buying the mass-produced sushi. And, sorry, the mass-produced, like, you know, McDonald's sort of styled of stuff. And you're, 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 you're eating stuff that is... Uh, that is going to be thrown away is a perfect, beautiful piece of meat covered in marbling. It's delicious. That's where people's minds should start to think. Yeah, and in, in Europe, the uh, the ex-dairy cows are super popular. I remember when I looked into this before, and you, you might know the answer on this, or it might be a little bit too detailed, but I, you know, post-BSE, there was this sort of regulation that all cows had to be uh, in less than three years old, I think, and normally it's about two and a half years in the meat industry, and therefore they weren't allowed to sell dairy into the meat industry because of potential sort of BSE. But I, I take it that regulation's changed now. Did, did, you, did that come yeah. up when you were doing your research? Or? I didn't. I didn't know that part that they weren't allowed to be more than three years old. But um, it definitely had. It definitely has changed. Uh, and 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 yeah. Now we can. Yeah. Okay. And um, the, the other thing that comes up a lot is uh, is obviously around obesity, and the government are talking about putting calories on uh, on every menu dish to to uh, challenge obesity. What's your thoughts on that? I think it's a lot of rubbish. I really hope that doesn't come into it because people go out to you know restaurants like mine for an experience you don't go out there for a side salad and to to be made to feel like oh man i'm eating bad food so that i think will cripple the more formal dining uh, market yeah i always think it's a shame i think we end up on this trajectory where all food almost has to be bloody you know centrally produced in a factory because that's the only place you can get accurate calorific information because as you were talking about then you know if you're all of a sudden chucking in a little bit of cauliflower stalk or, or tweaking a dish and proper chefs you know for me it should be about real food or shit processed food and everybody should be encouraged to eat real food and if you're eating real food and you're a real chef you're going to tweak the recipe and tweak the dish you know almost every time depending on flavor and, and having to hand it over to a nutritionalist to do some analysis would, would probably kill uh, the creative food sector and we end up we're going look we might as well give up and put everything in a bloody ginster's pie wrapper no, 100%. And, and then you'll find that a lot of chefs they, and the calorie counting to them dishes will be incorrect because they are very much, uh, okay, this didn't work, let's add a little bit more butter or, or let's change this to this. And 
it just will not be accurate. So it'll be a complete waste of time, complete waste of money. And it'll just be off-putting to a diner who's coming in to have a tasting menu that's 18 courses and realize, well, that's actually like 4,000 calories. Well, you don't do it every day. It's a special occasion. Yeah. So have you ever, have you given any headspace? Cause you've got enough crap on your plate and you're thinking about enough stuff, but what do we do about the, uh, I suppose, particularly sort of, you know, childhood obesity and, and is it, is it around education again? Have you given any thoughts? Yeah. Education, education massively. So adopt a school, a phenomenal program, uh, getting kids to actually understand, um, well, one numbers and, and English and, and science between making things such as bread or, or salads or vegetables and stuff like that. Education at a young age gets people inspired. And I don't really think obesity should happen um, as a kid because vegetables are the most colorful things ever and, and kids love color. So when, when you just, when you get, when you start to educate parents as well as children into different colors and different textures, different flavors, you'll tend to see that they eat more. But I personally think if they want to calorie, calorie count restaurant menus, they should bloody ban processed food in general. You know, that's the one that does you damage. Processed food makes you fat. Eating butter with a piece of beef doesn't because it's natural. It's processed food that makes you fat, makes you feel sluggish, makes your, your, you know, your mental state and your mind not as quick in progression and, and, and on the ball. Ban that. You'll soon see a stop. Yeah. Am I right in saying that your mum was a bit of a trailblazer of this? And when you were a kid, she had a, a natural aversion to any kind of processed food and used to make everything fresh even then. Is that right? Well, 100%. You know, a proper housewife. She wasn't wasn't a chef, proper housewife. And she just cared about what went in the kids' bodies. Plus, I had an intolerance to like sugar and um, and dairy when I was younger, when I was, when I was a little boy. Not anymore. And therefore, she didn't trust anything that came out of the shops. You'd, you'd always smell bread and you'd always smell like cakes and You'd always smell like soup, roasts, or whatever. And it was just delicious. And everything was natural. No, There was no processed shit. I never had a hot dog. <laughs> I never had a McDonald's. My mom was really quite strict. I wasn't allowed to eat any of that stuff. It was <laughs> when I went to my grandparents, then I got it. Um, but it's just like, yeah, <laughs> she was very much a what goes inside your kid's body is very, very bloody important. What, is, what does your mom feel about your uh, love of Kentucky Fried Chicken, Adam? <laughs> yeah, she hates that. She's like, how can you eat that? It's bloody disgusting. It's the best thing ever. <laughs> I yeah, love that. You know, we've, all got, we've all got a guilty pleasure. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Well, look, look, moving on to, to the future a little bit. So one of, the, one of the other big things that was a trend in this, this sort of podcast, I suppose, well, a trend, trend in hospitality, basically, way before um, COVID happened, was this sort of, this change, I suppose, this, this sort of venture capitalist investment in hospitality. And, and for me, something that in some ways was ripping the soul out of hospitality, because all of a sudden, we started to get these rollouts of these casual dining brands, you know, national brands, and a little bit formulaic and a little bit beige. And I just wonder what your opinion is as we go forward. Clearly, hospitality is you know, going to go through a real struggle. Do you think that it's going to be the, the, the casual dining sector, by which I mean the sort of, you know, the, the well-backed brands that, that survive this and get through it? Or do you think they're going to take a hit and actually it's going to create some space in the market to go back to more of the independent neighborhood restaurants? Have you, have you given any thought to yeah, who comes out the other side of this? Yeah, I think the capital investment restaurants are the ones that are going to get hit the most. They're the ones that, because they're not restaurateurs. They're business people that look at balance sheets and they look at forecasting, they look at P&Ls. And then they're, they're the ones that are forecasting losses. Therefore, they'll just cut their loss and they will move their investments to, well, not them because they've lost their investments, but they'll put all their new investments into other markets, not being the hospitality one. So I feel like this 
virus is it's been like uh, a little culling session in hospitality and it's getting rid of the soulless restaurants sadly there's some phenomenal restaurants like one of my favorite for instance uh, hasn't made it but that's you know that that's that's unfortunate and i really feel for i feel for everyone who's lost a restaurant in this not or any business for that matter um but i feel going forward the consumers want to eat in a restaurant with personality, individuality, uh, and I think chained restaurants where it's copy and paste with no real soul, just a, just a purpose, is pretty much on the, the downward slide to collapse. Do you think that's a good thing? I think it's a good and a bad thing. Good for the hospitality industry to make sure that Britain stays the top of its game in terms of um, its individuality and what it's producing. Bad on one hand that that's people's money that they've lost and that's jobs that are lost as well. But, you know, it's the nature of the beast. Regardless if you're a two-star restaurant where there are two phenomenal that have lost it or you're just a rollout chain of soulless food, it's it's, it's unfortunate to, to lose something. But it needs to happen. There are far too many restaurants in London. I know that I'm saying London because I know that market far more than anywhere else in the UK. And and, it, and sadly, it needs it. It needs this. I lost four of it. So, you know, I can't speak. They, I needed to use them as well so I can make my group better. Yeah. No, you're, uh, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And I, I hope, uh, I, I hope it's, uh, and I share your concerns that, you know, everybody's got livelihoods and, and it's a real shame for individual people. But yeah, I, I do feel it's why this is called the humans of hospitality and not the brands of hospitality as I was getting fed up with these sort of formulaic rollouts kind of affecting a sector that I feel so passionately about and which has some incredibly, you know, creative and energized human beings behind. And it was a shame to see it disappearing for the sake of a sort of a, a, yeah, a board of directors in London who didn't really understand hospitality. So whilst there's some sad sides, I, I really do hope that it's a little bit of a reset. You mentioned earlier about the sort of benefit of having outside tables and great for August. Again, you sort of predictions for the future, um, you know, going into winter, all of a sudden you can't use the terraces so much. What, what's your thoughts on, on sort of how many restaurants, I suppose, are, are going to close? And do you think, are you optimistic about you know, hospitality in, in the medium to long term, at least, what's the sort of time frame you're working on as to when restaurants can get back to profitability? I think the end of September is when, uh, when we'll see that a lot of restaurants haven't made it. And I think probably 20%, I'm, I'm, I'm saying 20% of hospitality in this country would have collapsed, which is a ridiculous amount. Uh, and I'm saying that by September because now all the furloughs are now changing. Uh, the winding up scheme, so a, com- a company can demand demand uh, their bills to be paid and therefore can submit to the courts for your restaurant to be bankrupt, is is now as of first of August opened up, and that right there is going to is going to make a lot of restaurants close. Um, and it's going to push them in that direction. So I think end of September, that's when we're going to see the big ones. But we're also going to see a lot more restaurants come on the market. And the way that landlords need to need to adapt is instead of having big, big rents and big deposits, they're having percentages of turnovers. They're having um, capital investments from them. So therefore, they're saying, uh, we'll do you a landlord's contribution of just, say, 100 or 200,000 pounds, but we want to buy the equipment. So then when you leave, the equipment stays here. You know, that's the capital investment of the people of the of the buildings i i think is going to go so we put we put proposals for another couple more restaurants based on that uh and we've seen a good um a good uptake from landlords to say well yeah we're actually going to be changing a lot of our new portfolios to that to that route 
because we need these places filled. So it's new now, if you want to open a restaurant, someone that's really gasping to have their own one, now is the time to team up with someone who knows how to open restaurants, create a stunning business plan, create you know an idea and menu concept and everything, and then find landlords because they will then take percentage of rent percentage of turnover sorry for rent rather than having to upfront put in you know half a million pound to a million pound in a restaurant now you put in yourself and maybe a hundred or two hundred thousand and you get them to pay the rest so i think in that perspective we'll see a lot more people being able to get their own restaurants um, which is phenomenal to see and then i'm thinking after december after December, so for the last quarter of this month, January this year, I think I think a lot of rural restaurants will be will be them pumping it into profit. The first quarter of next year, I think, should be all good, for ready for March's um, you know rents uh, rateable value to get put back into place and the VAT to go back up next year as well. So we need to save as much money over the next nine months as possible before all these VATs start to go back up. Yeah, I love the fact that despite the tears and and the loss of your restaurants and clearly the kind of you know emotional three or four months that you've had, that fundamentally you're still pumped and thinking now's the perfect time for somebody to open a restaurant. So, yeah, you're mental, but uh, but hats off to you. Yeah, I've been told that. I've been told that. But you know, you, you have to make you have to make a good situation out of a bad crisis. You know, you have to really try and make be as possible as possible, be as positive as possible for your own sanity not just the people around you, for your own sanity. Uh, and I, I think the future is as good as you want to make it. So you believe in yourself and you really think, I can do something or I can uh, you know, fulfill my dreams, do it. Don't let a bloody cold ruin your future. <laughs> that's why i like doing these podcasts because this this sector is full of uh yeah e- equally bonkers and creative people um adam do you think you would uh would you consider opening somewhere out of london I would, I would probably not for another year or so because I need to make sure that my group's fully stable before I start to um, branch out. I'll, I'll create another one in London, but that means I can still go to it every day. But yeah, of course, I would love to put one in Scotland. You know, it's my my home country. I think that would be absolutely phenomenal. Uh, but my group needs to be a far more far more stable than what it currently is to be able to do that. Hmm. Do you think going forward, then, with, with what you've now been through, do you think this will have a long term impact on? how you grow the business because you were you know growing at a significant rate of knots before do you think you're going to be more inclined to keep you know maybe a little bit more of a, of a cash cushion in the business than than you were before or do you think you'll go as hard as you always did no no i, I i'm learning from my own mistakes uh, i've made a lot of mistakes uh, on the road but you know it's the first time I've, I've owned a restaurant group so i'm about i'm about to well it's obvious i will do so yeah uh the one thing i have noticed that i messed up the most is not having protection not having a not having a a buffer of cash somewhere so that if something did happen we were there we were living every month month by month in the restaurant group so one bad month you screwed so yeah contingency plans and um haim you know haim and contingency plans they're the two they're the two i would really do moving forward Uh, and don't open another restaurant until i can physically afford to have one fail Okay, good advice. So if, if, if uh, you know, Adam Handling as is now went back and spoke to Adam Handling five years ago, is there a key nugget of advice you would give yourself back then knowing what you've been through? 100%, but I know me back then will just tell me to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's a good answer. I think I think you're absolutely right. Well, look, I'm I'm conscious of time and your exceptionally busy schedule, but yeah, really, uh, yeah, I, I love watching your adventures. And like I say I've seen you talk, and and I just you know, I, hats off to the amount of energy and the amount of drive you've got. And I don't think you can teach people to be a a driven sort of inspirational entrepreneur, but I can see why you achieved so much so young. Uh, if people want to follow your adventures and your restaurants, is there a particular sort of social media channel or website where should people go to follow you, Adam? Yeah, check me out about all social medias, Instagram, Adam Handling um, is there. Uh, and uh, yeah, check me out there. You see the timeline of me doing stupid shit every day. But yeah, my storyline is a little bit more professional with all my restaurants and everything. Okay, perfect. Well, I'll put some links up in, in the show notes that go with this episode as well on the website. So uh, yeah, just once again, thanks, thanks for sparing the time. I'm glad we managed to reschedule so quickly. And uh, yeah, I've enjoyed chatting to you. Thanks, Adam. Good luck in the future. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. So there you have it. Anybody else exhausted having listened to Adam's crazy journey? Uh, as I said, he is a busy man, but hats off to him for all he's achieved. So why not go and help Adam out? Maybe order one of his Hame dishes uh, for delivery to your house and make some of Adam Handling's food at home. Head over to the website humansofhospitality.co.uk and I will put some links to the uh, social media and to his website on there as we discussed. And uh, remember, if you can, go back to the beginning, listen to what I said there, leave a review for the podcast. It really, really does help me out and I get better guests for you to listen to. So we're all a winner. Okay, I'll be back in a week with another guest. Cheers. Cheers.